Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Got to talk about M&A Monday. We aren't going to call it that because there are so many deals to get our teeth into. Can I just have a comment on LVMH and Tiffany? Some of this is going to be funded by debt and it will yield zero to one percent. And the current credit rating of LVMH right now in Europe is single A. And I think that Tiffany's and the likes of LVMH are thinking about what something something the U.S. companies have thought about for the last few years. What is the value of running a single A balance sheet when yields are still so low? If you run a triple B balance sheet, you still remain investment grade. The ECB will still buy your debt and you can go and buy some growth with a yield on your debt of what, 50 basis points for investment grade debt in Europe right now? You're basically it's being like free told. Money. Yeah, I mean, you're basically it, being told. I, I'm sorry. You know, we end with money for nothing. You yeah. know, dire straits, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's just that simple. It'll be interesting. I should point out, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's three of the four corners at 57th Street and 5th Avenue. You would know better than me. Chris Morangi shopped at all four stores on the corners. He's with us now, Chris Morangi, Cavelli Funds co-chief investment <laughs> officer. We're not going to talk about your shopping habits, Chris. Don't worry. Except what do you make, stocks, maybe. What do you make of the deal flow that we've seen this morning, Chris? Yeah, well, both of, you know the uh, the thing about these two deals are the cat was out of the bag a couple of weeks ago on, on both of them. So this is just a confirmation of what we had speculated upon earlier. Um, you know, M&A has been a little bit slow uh, late this year uh, as there's been some uncertainty, obviously, globally policy in the U.S., what's happening with China. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I've said for a while, if you want to get a deal done, now's the time to do it. I'd probably have a regulatory window, and, and certainly money is almost free. Why a regulatory window now? Uh, to the extent that you've got to get approved by U.S. regulatory agencies, perhaps there's a, a bit of a fog of war as we head into the election. You get something done now. You don't know what you're going to be left with a year from now, what what kind of administration and its position toward mergers. A lot of macro risk over the last year or so, a lot of hope that that's diminishing now, starting to fade. Do you share that hope, Chris? Yeah, I think, you know, the market tends to look at things through two lenses. One is what's happening with the election, and the other is what's happening with China. And uh, as you stated earlier, I think, you know, a little bit of good news perhaps on the China front. I, I do think the market is pricing in uh, a high and increasing probability that we get a phase one deal. I think it's it's really changed from let's reset the relationship with China too. Let's just stop things from getting worse. You know, let's talk about what happened with China. They said that they were going to be cracking down on intellectual property theft uh, a little bit more. Uh, I'm trying to understand how real this is because this was supposed to be the hard part of the deal. They're coming out with something there. There's no sign of enforcement there. And we're hearing that soybean purchases dropped to the lowest in years uh, by China of, of U.S. Uh, pr- produce. So what do you make of the pro- the actual advancement that we've gotten here? Yeah, I think... I think you're right to be skeptical. Uh, we're, I'm certainly skeptical of how this actually plays out. But again, to the point of let's just stop this from getting worse. Let's stabilize the situation that we have and, and, and move on from, from these headlines. Where's the opportunity right now? I don't mean to be saying, you know, you guys are running an esteemed value portfolio. We all know the Gabelli Media Mechanics. Mario started out in auto parts and that kind of securities analysis. When you guys talk, where's the sector right now where you go, wow, this is the opportunity? Yeah, so, um, you know, one theme we've been talking about recently is the uh, disrupted disruptors. That is, companies that have been... That would been be dis- but continue. The, the companies that have been disrupted over the last, you know, decade by these late-stage venture companies now, yeah. often public, who, uh, you know, work with free money and give stuff away. 
Um, and, and that spurred a lot of the traditional companies to innovate. And I think a great example of that is Disney Plus, for example, which uh, I spent a lot of time with this weekend. Um, and so, you know, that, and you see this throughout media. Um, and you see it in a lot of other industries and consumer products and others. So I think that's an opportunity in some of these beaten down companies uh, to make some money, especially as the market seems to be pivoting toward value from momentum. Did you see the statistic over the weekend that Apple and Microsoft together are now twice as large as the entire S&P 500 energy sector and are larger than the entire Russell 2000 index? Yeah, I didn't see that specifically, but there, there are a lot of comparisons like that. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around this. How much further can they go? And they've been kind of the big driver of the whole rally that we've seen over the past Six years. Microsoft in particular has been, uh, we've talked about the, the FANG, but really Microsoft has been the, the juggernaut over the last 10 years. And, um, you know, all very well-managed companies with lots of capital. Um, I think one of the questions certainly is what happens uh, in the regulatory framework. Um, you've got both bipartisan pushback against all those companies. Let's talk about this rotation to value. JP Morgan out in the last couple of days and said it's 20% complete. The market's still in the first phase of the rotation, largely technical, short covering, etc. 20% complete. What do you make of that? Yeah, listen, so you've got a few things. Uh, you've got the market anticipating a bottoming in GDP sometime next year. You've got the steepening of the curve. And frankly, the, the gap in valuation between the most expensive and the cheapest companies uh, as wide as it's been in 20 years. Uh, so, you know, that, we've seen a little bit of mean reversion. I think that's going to continue. Chris Morangi, great to catch up with you. Gabelli Funds Co. Chief Investment Officer. Lisa Bramow, it's John Farrell here as well. And Tom Keenan Tom. with us. Jeffrey Curry. Uh, Jeffrey Curry joining us from Goldman Sachs. He's in our London offices this morning. Uh, Jeffrey Curry on oil, and it's real simple. There needs to be an observation on demand dynamics. What do you see right now? Well, when you look at um, overall demand for oil and energy broadly, it's what we would say benign. It's not great, not bad. And I think you have to dig into looking at the different components. There is a old economy CapEx component, and then there's a new economy OpEx component. OpEx means operating the economy. So things like jet fuel, gasoline, they're OpEx-oriented, while the CapEx side would be heavy industry, which would be like diesel fuel. So we look at the heavy industry side, the CapEx side, it's relatively weak, but the new economy or OpEx side, it's relatively strong. On net, it's a relatively benign outlook for 2020. Jeff, let's talk about the old economy this is something you've written recently. When we argued lower for longer commodity prices five years ago, it was based upon the need to rationalize old economy capacity. What happened? Well, the Chinese stimulated in 16 and 17. U.S. did fiscal policy in 17 and 18. And OPEC cut production over that time period. What did that do? Um, it just prolonged the rebalancing process. Um, we also added to capacity outside of China. We added to the debt levels. And as we got the emission data two weeks ago, we're at the highest level of emissions ever when many people thought the peak was 2014. So the net of it is we're in a worse place today than we were five years ago. But the positive point here is that we're beginning to see CapEx decline and the rebalancing beginning, which is why we're arguing to get long commodities today. Well, Jeff, just thinking about the old economy, though, just to take this another step further, how do some of these issues manifest themselves elsewhere? 
You mean in terms of... In terms know, of the corporate losses that we might see, what it might mean for the debt market, what it means for emissions, all these kind of things. We can sit here and say the old economy is a small percentage of overall GDP, but does it have bigger implications elsewhere? Well, I, I think when you look at the returns in the old economy space, they've been um, so weak that you've seen more capital redirected at new economy. If you just look at a picture of new economy stocks versus old economy stocks, yeah. the wedge between the two is spectacular. In fact, I like to call it a lost decade of the old economy because all the capital is being fed into the new economy. Now, to answer your question specifically, the question is, can you see systemic risk developed out of the old economy? One stat I like to point out is 90% of the non-financial debt globally is held by the old economy. Why? Because they have the physical assets that you could use as collateral to, get, to leverage to get the debt. So the question is, could this end up being a systemic risk? Our basic answer to that is no, because the deleveraging process right. has already begun. When you speak with David Costin, is there just a Goldman Sachs view of an industry roll-up, not only in oil, but in commodities in general? Well, in terms of, you know, he has a picture that's similar to the one I just described, which is when you look at the new economy, it's doing relatively well. And that wedge is, I think, at the outperformance is something like 52%. Um, I, I think the key point is that even when you look at the, um, you know, the, the price, you know, a, a, you know a EPS, um, um, number or price to book or price to earnings, um, you know, you're at the high level, but you're not at crazy levels. And so that component will likely continue to grow next year, even though the old economy will likely continue to struggle. So yeah. Yeah, David incorporates that. It's part of the view. But I think, again, goes back to that point that the new economy is two thirds, the old economy is one third. Jeff, just real quick here. Let's get some 2020 calls. We're looking right now at oil uh, traded on the NYMEX, $57.70. Where do you see it going next year? Um, you know, our base case is um, $60 a barrel for Brent next year, but I, I don't want to discount the ability for this thing to trade up into $65, $70 a barrel. Um, it just won't be sustainable. Um, and I think we saw that a couple of weeks ago when you had the risk on environment, um, equities rallied, commodities did not follow through. And one of the reasons why is these producers that are under financial distress sold forward on the forward curve, keeping prices under wraps. So the front end will try to spike up, but the back end will likely be sold. Mm -hmm as producers try to lock in those margins and that'll keep it from going too high. Jeff Curry, thank you so much. He's with Goldman Sachs, of course, head of their commodity coverage, and we thank him. We didn't have time there for gold where uh, he was most enthusiastic on it a number of uh, months ago as well. You need a briefing to get you started on a Monday. You do that across asset. You look at the litmus paper of the system, which is FX, which John Farrell can only mean Mr. You from London. I'm really you happy to say it? that Jeff Yu joins us now, UBS Private Banking Chief Investment Officer. Jeff, it's great to catch up with you. Let's walk through some things, Morning. shall we? You were underweight global equities. Something changed in the last couple of weeks. What changed? Well, less negative. I think, you know, that's probably the best way um, to put it. You know, data showing some signs of stabilization, acknowledging, you know, this phase one deal, you know, should it happen, you know, might just give 
market's a bit of a tailwind um, as well, so I'm starting to take off some underweights, notably in emerging markets. But let's be clear, does this mean we're positive? No, it doesn't. You know, there is still daylight between being not negative versus positive, and I think markets need to tell the difference. All right, so let's talk about what's going on with trade, because IP, uh, the idea that China might crack down on intellectual property theft has given a little bit of lift to markets. Is this a meaningful development from your perspective? Right. So um, let's unwind, um, you know, back to uh, rewind, you know, back to, you know, May, you know, when the last deal supposedly collapsed. You know, this is one of the uh, crucial points, right? So it's not about what is being done. It's how it was being done. China objected to um, seemingly being forced by the U.S. to actually make changes in its law rather than, you know, administrative, you know, methods and which um, they you know, wanted to uh, push forward. So we want to see, you know, what the implementation is. I think um, the headlines um, don't give enough meat to um, that yet. Uh, so I think the two are trying to to meet halfway at this point. I think what China needs to sell to the domestic population is that protecting IP, this helps China's innovation. It helps, you know, Chinese inventors, it helps holders of Chinese, Chinese holders of patents as well. I think, you know, that can be good for China's development and also, you know, make a deal more palpable. But again, proof is in the pudding. All right. So let's turn our focus now to Europe, because we did say a a little bit better than expected data out of Germany that seems to be edifying this idea of a bottoming out uh, in the decline that we saw the deterioration in the European economy. What do you make so far? Do you think that this is a tipping point and that we're going to see a steady improvement uh, in the figures coming out of the Eurozone? So there are two things here. One is the relative and one is um, the uh, absolute, right? So if data is um, starting to uh, stabilize uh, on an absolute basis, uh, you know, then that's um, you know, fair enough. But uh, where is data performing you know, relative to um, expectations? And again, you know, this is more of a relative thing. So if we look at UBS's and surprise indices, for example, yes, data has stabilized, but also that's because you know, expectations have been so weak, it actually becomes easier to surprise to the upside or harder to surprise the downside, right? Uh, so I think you're putting these um, things together. We maybe we've bottomed out on an absolute and relative basis, but again, we yeah. need a demand catalyst to actually go up. Jeff, you've always been flow-based. The flow is cash up to our eyeballs. Define where the mm-hmm. cash finds a warm spot or does it not have to? So I think cash will still, you know, have to go into yield territory at this point. You know, some areas we like, for for example, emerging markets, yeah, oh, hard amazing. currency, sovereign debt, yeah. um, but also, you know, private equity alternatives. Think longer yeah. term. So you pick up the illiquidity premium. Uh, you know, that is a good substitute right now, but also a lot of right. dry powder there as well. That's great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was going to be the name of John's property, the real yield. It was going to be called yield territory, <laughs> but then they changed Yield territory. It. Yield territory. <laughs> Jeff, can we get to the other part of the market? market that we haven't really discussed as far. What the basic assumptions are for foreign exchange at the moment? Many people thinking about buying the rest of the world. We've certainly had some outperformance from Europe through the year so far. What is the assumption that you have, the core assumption on foreign exchange and the US dollar? Uh, we're not there yet, as in the dollar's probably topped out, but does it mean the start of a dollar bear trend? You know, not yet. So we there are selective EM names we want to you know pick up some carry from, um, but again, we don't want to really you know, fund that out of the dollar right now. But the dollar's not a real uh, a, a low yielder anymore, right? It's not really a funding currency. Uh, so you fund that out of Aussie, you know, for example, where the, some of the cyclical trends are the same. You want to own some Swiss and yen, perhaps, um, if you're still uncertain about the outlook. Um, so I think the dollar is going to be choppy. I wouldn't add to dollar positioning right now but again not really a bad trend did, coming through. did he say you want to own some swiss you want to go long swiss frank mm-hmm. you want as a defensive and play we want to did, own the barbell you know so to speak i'm yeah. gonna tear up or that's where i met john farrow 
Oh, God. Was, was, was I wanted to ask about... Um, so <laughs> in Zurich a long, long time ago, Tom. <laughs> He's pulling out his napkin and dabbing at his eyes. It's very moving. But, Jeff, I would love your perspective. You know, in, in 2019, the sort of overarching theme was a disinflationary kind of bent. You saw yields all around the world plunge. We seem to be shifting out of that. Heading into 2020, what is the driving narrative uh, that's giving you some focus? Well, so real yields, you know, where they go. Um, so, again, though disinflation, if we are going to start to price that out, uh, then does it mean we're going to start to price in inflation? I don't think central banks are ready to go for that yet. Remember, if monetary policy works, then yield curves are supposed to steep and inflation expectations are expected to go up. If we look at a five-year, five-year forwards right now, that's not coming through. But if we can keep real yield expectations relatively low, it's a good environment for real assets, for commodities and for, for precious metals in the even then that could help explain some of the flow going into private equity to capture some of those real assets as well. So where do real yields go? And it's less about nominal yields now. It's more about inflation expectations. Can central banks succeed in reflating that? The jury's still out there. Can they, Jeff? Well, so, you know, right now you look at long-term demographics. Um, I still think, you know, they, they do sort of, you know, have their backs against the wall right now. Japanification, it's no longer a question of if, and for example, in Europe, and more and more people um, are, you know, saying, well, Europe is actually already in the throngs of that. So, you know, can, how can they actually make the best out of a bad situation? Um, so net, net um, you know, fiscal, is that going to come as well? Because, you know, that seems to be the last card to play. Curve flatter over the last eight days coming into today's session, Jeff. What do yep. you make of that? So um, I don't buy the view that um, it's um, recession, you know, coming through. Um, I think some of it's in a profit, a profit taking on more of the more reflationary trades um, that have, um, you know, come out. Data stabilization, but again, not data yeah. pickup. You need a data pickup demand to get a proper steeper curve. Jeff, you, you, you mentioned five-year, five years haven't moved, indicating higher inflation. I actually looked at those charts Friday. It's amazing how we have stayed in a disinflation tone. If we move out the x-axis of low inflation, how far out is Jeff U moving? Is it 2021 or can you get out two and three and four years of sustained low inflation? Well, look at where um, you know, Japan's um, inflation expectations you know, have been, right? So let alone the numbers, the Tankan surveys, you know, you barely see a five-year inflation expectation survey result above two on the part of corporates, which means no pricing power. So that really, I think, the, the onus is on the U.S. in particular and emerging markets to avoid you know, going into that um, kind of a spiral. Uh, so uh, I think five years, the absolute, uh, the absolute max, if you want to use um, the Tankan, the Japanese as a reference. But again, we go back to the demand kick. Is it going to come from fiscal. If it is, you know, then these things can actually be steep in quite aggressively. So uh, remember, um, it's always, you know, the, the least position trades, reflation trades, they come to you when you least expect it, right? Yeah. If we look at, you know, June 2016, right, from 190 to 270 in the space of two months. So Jeff, this sounds vaguely not terrible, but not particularly uh, raging bull here yet. We're hearing that there's so yep. much cash hanging out there to go invest in stocks yep. and such that it's going to lead to a good year for risk assets. Do you buy that? Um, so I have a lot of sympathy with that. You know, if we look at cash ratios you know, on part of my uh, our private clients, on part of institutional clients, the dry powder and private equity, um, it, it seems like there is no alternative, right, but to be in equities. Um, but I think central banks will be thinking, what are the long term, especially political costs, um, right, if it does mean those with assets and those without assets, that just widens um, gaps and it causes difficulties for them. So I think that will be an ongoing force, but maybe something they'll gently try to deter. Jeff, you thank you so much with UBS. Thanks, if we don't, I'm sure we're going to talk to him before. 
I hope so. I think I'm still going to see him in London, so looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. I mean, we could see him in London, and there's a lot going on, but there's an optimistic tone there. Right now, we have to digress. John Farrow and I are just not qualified to speak of the blue box at 57th Street. So we defer to Lisa Abramowitz to bring in our guest from Hang London. Hang on a minute. You really? know more about the uh, blue box. Are you box. kidding? You know that, more about the blue box than not. anyone on this no. floor oh, in this no. building. Your expression just shows, just reeks Please. of genuine, genuine sentiment. You, you know more about what floor is what. Anyway, I do You've got I more experience buying engagement rings than all of us. Oh, oh, oh really? Oh, tell, whoa, tell us whoa. about it. How many? <laughs> all right. So Deborah Aitken uh, joining us now to talk about uh, not how many uh, engagement rings, Tom Keen has bought. Uh, she is senior analyst covering luxury goods and beauty uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from London. Deborah, uh, it seems like the bet here is that uh, that Tiffany will offer a sort of lower entry point, or at least a range for LVMH. Can you give us a sense from your perspective of how this will go down? What will be the net benefit uh, going forward for both of these companies combined? Sure. So. Uh, if we look at Tiffany, it's been struggling with its designer jewellery over the last couple of years. And the last quarter that it reported was minus 3% like for like, um, not doing so well at the bottom end where competition is building as one of the things. Strong dollar, not so much tourism flow. So that's all been detrimental to Tiffany. But if we look at the other end too, um, and we think about LVMH, they own the Bulgari brand, much higher end starting point, entry point. Um, and they will be able to benefit from the low end with Tiffany to offer the younger consumer, which they talk to very well through its brands like Louis Vuitton and others, um, into into the brand better, we think, than yeah. Tiffany has done. And then also um, at the high end, we've heard Arno on the calls this morning saying they will very much be right. able to manipulate up at the higher end. You'll manipulate. I know what manipulate means in my hands on my wallet. Deborah, the, the heart of the matter here is the Chinese. The Chinese are going to buy at 57th Street or Bond Street, or, the, or for that matter, Heathrow, or the Chinese are going to buy in China. Do you see any indication the Tiffany Blue Box can work domestically in China? Yes, so uh, Tiffany, if, if I pull up market share, the one of the reasons on the other side, the flip side would be that LVMH has 10% market share in Asia, whereas Tiffany already has 16%. And what LVMH has been very strong in doing is persuading outside of Hong Kong consumers to purchase with its store capability across the whole of China in yeah. several tiers. Of cities, and this is one of the things. Its balance sheet allows it to be able to uh, market and manage and manipulate the market manipulate. more successfully. What does manipulate mean? Sorry, well, using that word, I think I mean it knows where the buyers are. It's able oh, really? to open more stores. Um, to do more merchandising, to transfer some of yeah. the designers in its portfolio across to this okay. brand. Deborah, thank you so much. Deborah Aiken with us with Bloomberg Intelligence.
What we're going to do now is three topics. Shanali Bassick with us, our chief financial correspondent. Let's do Schwab Ameritrade first. What's the regulation pushback going to be? Do our reporters have any idea of which agencies are going to say, uh, wait a minute? Well, there are actually some antitrust concerns here because besides the broker wars here, what people don't realize about Schwab and TD Ameritrade is that it would actually create one of the top custodians, which means it would hold on to money for registered investment advisors. So that's actually the business that they're going to become, number one and number three, merging. And it's a big antitrust concern. So what is the what are the companies saying about this antitrust? Because I saw a number of that might be half of the assets of these RIAs, right, which right. sounds like a number that the regulators are really going to have a problem with. Right. Well, it depends on what they do with that business, right? I mean, right now, the... The promise here is to diversify the business. You can't just run a business where all your fees are going to zero in trading. This custodian business is a big one. It's a good one. Um, also, remember, they get more than half of their revenue from interest income. And so what this business looks like in a year from now, I think, is a big question mark yeah. still. Just because of time. Uh, Steve Ahrens with a spectacular article. I put it out, folks, on Twitter this weekend. It's the yes. first real look and I say this constructively and with respect of Mr. Saving of Deutsche Bank. How was that article received by Planet Deutsche Bank? I think even some of his own employees were um, interested to read about him. Remember, this guy is flying all over the totally world. Totally domestic, right? Uh, he, well, he's a German for sure. And so the U.S. employees since he started have been very, very jittery, right? And remember, this paints a very strong picture of somebody who is very scrappy, rose to the top, and is not an investment banker in the true and tried sense. So what is the thinking at Deutsche Bank? I'm just in the stock's down 10% this year. There's a real question of whether this institution can be a global investment bank or is it simply going to be, you know, a strong domestic German player. That's the struggle our um, reporter Steve Ahrens had pointed out here. Remember, he's on this very ambitious restructuring plan that nobody knows will work yet. And so it, definitely there are people, most of his deputies have now been pushed out. There's heat on the chairman now itself. So the heat is still on for the next year or so to come. So it's by no means in the clear for Christian Seving. So the, the sense is that, you know, it, it seems like when you look at the plan for Deutsche Bank, Let's retrench and just focus on where we're really, really good and we have a competitive advantage. I guess the question that I think a lot of investors have is, where are you really, really competitive and where can you really drive growth given how competitive the global banking business is with the U.S. players. By the way, and even though they have a lot of um, German leaders here, that doesn't mean the bank is not global. And so when they're whittling down, they're focusing on certain businesses, fixed income trading, for example. But that is still global, and they still have a big U.S. operation, and yeah. they still have a big operation in Asia as well. Shanali Basik with us, our chief financial correspondent. Shanali, I haven't seen you in ages, and I, and I haven't brought this up yet on here, and I want to bring it up. Lewis Bacon, I put it in category with Henry Paulson, and that these are guys who have taken philanthropy and actually really done something with, with conservation. I'd also link uh, him in with Tom Secunda, one of the founders of Bloomberg LP, Mr. Secunda with the forest, Mr. Paulson with eagles, and particularly the complete restoration of the Philippine eagle, which is this ginormous bird, the thin yep. paws. 
I don't. I think it couldn't get in the studio. <laughs> and then there's Lewis Bacon, who was a hedge fund guy in that. Uh, you and I haven't talked about this. Who's Lewis Bacon, and why is he getting out of the hedge fund game? Well, he's one of many billionaires to do so. But yes, he is a billionaire, and he made his money in the hedge fund industry. Remember, that's an industry that's been facing a lot of pressure yeah, all over the place. What went wrong for him? He's, he's a really smart guy. We all know that. What? You know, how did he get to the place a lot of others less experienced get to? Well, he grew up in the heyday of hedge funds, right? And, and the heyday's uh, over. The heyday's well over. But I've got to say, with that said, there are, is a new class rising here. Jack Woodruff, which is a Citadel alumni, raised about $2 billion for a new fund. And, you know, even though you have the old guard like Louis Bacon stepping down, I, I don't think it means that the okay, age well, is completely okay, over you know, for the I, new guys. I, I, I'm watching Succession, so I, not Succession, <laughs> Billionaire. Billions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm watching Billions, so I can get smarter on this. Right. Are the new guys using the same techniques as the old guys? Some of them are, which is the interesting part. These are not all quants sitting behind computers and watching um, you know, certain trades and crowding into them. This is some standalone stock pickers that make money through merger ARB and that make money through betting on individual technology or in the case of Woodruff consumer names. Excuse me, that's called yep. buying Amazon at the right <laughs> price. Uh, that's Watching my bias. Tom, again, I'll, I'll be clear with my bias uh-huh. here. I think the long short hedge fund business uh, basically peaked has been in a decline since 2006 at the latest, at the latest. And uh, you look at the returns and they just haven't there. So for Mr. Bacon, macro strategist kind of looking at everything and macro that strategy has been tough that strategy has been tough it's the worst performing one yeah. this year and then also macro is, macro is among the worst well, right now and you see a lot of names get hurt Ray Dalio's what? main fund how's Ray Dalio doing I mean Mr. Dalio this is interest rate parity right. right it's a different game so he, betting the wrong way on interest <laughs> rates was his problem here and remember let me put it in perspective oh, wait a minute Ray is wicked doom and gloom <laughs> Mr. Dalio good morning I hope you're listening I got your wonderful new like he's got a kid's picture book out it's actually beautiful Does he? it's okay. actually a really beautiful book how's Dalio and Bridgewater doing so last year they had about a 14% returns in their main fund but, okay. at, at the, but this year it's been doing a lot worse and you have some investment Investors complaining. For example, there's a small pension in um, Northern California. Kathy Burton, our, our Bloomberg reporter, yeah. has written about it. They pulled all their money because they didn't like the five-year return. And so, uh, you know, over a longer time horizon, remember, this is not like the heyday. Louis Bacon, you were talking about, in the heyday, he was producing annualized returns about 30%. 30. Yeah. And so you're not seeing that kind of blowout right. performance anymore among these guys. One, one final question. Have you read uh, Zuckerman's new book on uh, Mr. Simmons? I haven't. How is it? I'm asking you. <laughs> Did you read it? I'm dying to. It's in my, in my stack. It's in I'm your stack of hedge fund books. stack of hedge fund books. It looks exquisite. Uh, Greg's up room with us last week talking about, Mrs. was that enough hedge fund talk, Paul, to keep us, you know? I think so, for a Monday of Thanksgiving week. In a Monday of Thanksgiving <laughs> week. But, you know, think Lewis works. Bacon mm. stepping down from uh, the business is, is big because he's one of the, as you mentioned, the pillars of the traditional uh, and hedge fund it, business. And his returns, by his own admission, you know, over the last seven, eight years, again, not just not where he wanted and, to be. And, and like others, like the other Paulson, uh, John Paulson, they have pers- they have persistently provided philanthropy to what interests them. In the case of Mr. Bacon, it's clearly been American uh, conservation, all sorts of other things uh, as well. Shanali, go away. That was wonderful. We'll see you tomorrow. Shanali Basak, Chief Financial Correspondent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.